for the past how many ever years in which I've been reading to you now, I've read a story on or about or around the Thanksgiving holiday, and then afterward thought, well, what was the point in all that? Nobody listens to the internet on Thanksgiving. Which is admittedly a little America-centric, but, you know, so's Thanksgiving. Anyway, thinking further on it, it gives me good reason to read only the most perfect stories I can find on or about Thanksgiving. After all, if you're listening to the internet on Thanksgiving, you don't want to waste your time on something half-arsed. You want a full-bore rock star story, especially if you've fired up the laptop at your grandmother's dinner table, or on the opposite end if you're spending the day with a cold-cut sandwich and mac and cheese and my voice... So here's one to fill both ends of that spectrum, although I cannot attest for anything in between. Hello, it's Wednesday, the 26th of November 2008, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. In Dreams Begin Responsibilities, by Delmar Schwartz. One. I think it is the year 1909. I feel as if I were in a moving picture theatre, the long arm of light crossing the darkness and spinning, my eyes fixed upon the screen. It is a silent picture, as if an old biograph one, in which the actors are dressed in ridiculously old-fashioned clothes, and one flash succeeds another with sudden jumps and the actors, too, seem to jump about, walking too fast. The shots are full of rays and dots, as if it had been raining when the picture was photographed. The light is bad. It is Sunday afternoon, June 12th, 1909 and my father is walking down the quiet streets of Brooklyn on his way to visit my mother. His clothes are newly pressed, and his tie is too tight in his high collar. He jingles the coins in his pocket, thinking of the witty things he will say. I feel as if I had by now relaxed entirely in the soft darkness of the theatre. The organist peels out the obvious, approximate emotions on which the audience rocks unknowingly. I am anonymous. I have forgotten myself. It is always so when one goes to a movie. It is, as they say, a drug... My father walks from street to street of trees, lawns and houses, once in a while coming to an avenue on which a streetcar skates and gnaws, progressing slowly. The motorman, who has a handlebar moustache, helps a young lady wearing a hat like a feathered ball onto the car. He leisurely makes change and rings his bell, as the passengers mount the car. It is obviously Sunday, for everyone is wearing Sunday clothes, and the streetcar's noises emphasise the quiet of the holiday, for Brooklyn is said to be 
the city of churches. The shops are closed and their shades drawn but for an occasional stationery store or drugstore with great green balls in the window. My father has chosen to take this long walk because he likes to walk and think. He thinks about himself in the future and so arrives at the place he is to visit in a mild state of exultation. He pays no attention to the houses he is passing, in which the Sunday dinner is being eaten, nor to the many trees which line each street, now coming to their full green and the time when they will enclose the whole street in leafy shadow. An occasional carriage passes, the horse's hooves falling like stones in the quiet afternoon, and once in a while an automobile looking like an enormous upholstered sofa, puffs and passes. My father thinks of my mother, of how ladylike she is, and of the pride which will be his when he introduces her to his family. They are not yet engaged, and he is not yet sure that he loves my mother, so that, once in a while, he becomes panicky about the bond already established. But then he reassures himself by thinking of the big men he admires who are married, William Randolph Hearst and William Howard Taft, who has just become the President of the United States. My father arrives at my mother's house. He has come too early and so is suddenly embarrassed. My aunt, my mother's younger sister, answers the loud bell with her napkin in her hand, for the family is still at dinner. As my father enters, my grandfather rises from the table and shakes hands with him. My mother has run upstairs to tidy herself. My grandmother asks my father if he has had dinner, and tells him that my mother will be down soon. My grandfather opens the conversation by remarking about the mild June weather. My father sits uncomfortably near the table, holding his hat in his hand. My grandmother tells my aunt to take my father's hat. My uncle, twelve years old, runs into the house, his hair tousled. He shouts a greeting to my father, who has often given him nickels, and then runs upstairs as my grandmother shouts after him. It is evident that the respect in which my father is held in this house is tempered by a good deal of mirth. He is impressive, but also very awkward. Two. Finally, my mother comes downstairs and my father, being at the moment engaged in conversation with my grandfather, is made uneasy by her entrance, for he does not know whether to greet my mother or continue the conversation. He gets up from his chair clumsily and says, Hello, gruffly. My grandfather watches this, examining their congruence, such as it is, with a critical eye 
and meanwhile rubbing his bearded cheek roughly, as he always does when he reasons. He is worried. He is afraid that my father will not make a good husband for his oldest daughter. At this point something happens to the film, just as my father says something funny to my mother. I am awakened to myself and my unhappiness just as my interest has become most intense. The audience begins to clap impatiently. Then the trouble is attended to, but the film has been returned to a portion just shown, and once more I see my grandfather rubbing his bearded cheek, pondering my father's character. It is difficult to get back into the picture once more and forget myself, but as my mother giggles at my father's words, the darkness drowns me. My father and mother depart from the house, my father shaking hands with my grandfather once more, out of some unknown uneasiness. I stir uneasily also, slouched in the hard chair of the theatre. Where is the older uncle, my mother's older brother? He is studying in his bedroom upstairs, studying for his final examinations at the College of the City of New York, having been dead of low-bar pneumonia for the last twenty-one years. My mother and father walk down the same quiet streets once more. My mother is holding my father's arm and telling him of the novel she has been reading and my father utters judgments of the characters as the plot is made clear to him. This is a habit which he very much enjoys, for he feels the utmost superiority and confidence when he is approving or condemning the behaviour of other people. At times he feels moved to utter a brief ugh when the story becomes what he would call sugary. My mother feels satisfied by the interest she has awakened, and she is showing my father how intelligent she is and how interesting. They reach the avenue, and the streetcar leisurely arrives. They are going to Coney Island this afternoon, although my mother really considers such pleasures inferior. She has made up her mind to indulge only in a walk on the boardwalk and a pleasant dinner, avoiding the riotous amusements as being beneath the dignity of so dignified a couple. My father tells my mother how much money he has made in the week just past, exaggerating an amount which need not have been exaggerated. But my father has always felt that actualities somehow fall short, no matter how fine they are. Suddenly, I begin to weep. The determined old lady who sits next to me in the theatre is annoyed and looks at me with an angry face. And, being intimidated, I stop. I drag out my handkerchief and dry my face, licking the drop which has fallen near my lips. Meanwhile, I have missed something, for here are my father and mother 
alighting from the streetcar at the last stop, Coney Island. 3. They walk toward the boardwalk, and my mother commands my father to inhale the pungent air from the sea. They both breathe in deeply, both of them laughing as they do so. They have in common a great interest in health, although my father is strong and husky and my mother is frail. They are both full of theories about what is good to eat and not good to eat, and sometimes have heated discussions about it, the whole matter ending in my father's announcement, made with a scornful bluster that you have to die sooner or later anyway. On the boardwalk's flagpole, the American flag is pulsing in an intermittent wind from the sea. My father and mother go to the rail of the boardwalk and look down on the beach where a good many bathers are casually walking about. A few are in the surf. A peanut whistle pierces the air with its pleasant and active whine and my father goes to buy peanuts. My mother remains at the rail and stares at the ocean. The ocean seems merry to her. It pointedly sparkles, and again and again the pony waves are released. She notices the children digging in the wet sand and the bathing costumes of the girls, who are her own age. My father returns with the peanuts. Overhead, the sun's lightning strikes and strikes, but neither of them are at all aware of it. The boardwalk is full of people dressed in their Sunday clothes and casually strolling. The tide does not reach as far as the boardwalk, and the strollers would feel no danger if it did. My father and mother lean on the rail of the boardwalk and absently stare at the ocean. The ocean is becoming rough. The waves come in slowly, tugging strength from back afar. The moment before they somersault, or the moment when they arch their backs so beautifully, showing white veins in the green and black, that moment is intolerable. They finally crack, dashing fiercely upon the sand, actually driving full force downward against it, bouncing upward and forward, and at last petering out in a small stream of bubbles which slides up the beach and then is recalled. The sun overhead does not disturb my father and my mother. They gaze idly at the ocean, scarcely interested in its harshness. But I stare at the terrible sun which breaks up sight and the fatal, merciless, passionate ocean. I forget my parents. I stare fascinated and finally shocked by their indifference. I burst out weeping once more. The old lady next to me pats my shoulder and says, There, there, young man, all of this is only a movie. Only a movie. But I look up once more, 
the terrifying sun and the terrifying ocean, and being unable to control my tears, I get up and go to the men's room, stumbling over the feet of the other people seated in my row. Far. When I return, feeling as if I had just awakened in the morning, sick for lack of sleep, several hours have apparently passed, and my parents are riding on the merry-go-round. My father is on a black horse, my mother on a white one, and they seem to be making an eternal circuit for the single purpose of snatching the nickel rings which are attached to an arm of one of the posts. A hand organ is playing. It is inseparable from the ceaseless circling of the merry-go-round. For a moment it seems that they will never get off the carousel, for it will never stop, and I feel as if I were looking down from the fiftieth story of a building. But at length they do get off. Even the hand organ has ceased for a moment. There is a sudden and sweet stillness, as if the achievement of so much motion. My mother has acquired only two rings. My father, however, ten of them, although it was my mother who really wanted them. They walk on along the boardwalk as the afternoon descends by imperceptible degrees into the incredible violet of dusk. Everything fades into a relaxed glow, even the ceaseless murmuring from the beach. They look for a place to have dinner. My father suggests the best restaurant on the boardwalk, and my mother demures according to her principles of economy and housewifeliness. However, they do go to the best place, asking for a table near the window so that they can look out upon the boardwalk and the mobile ocean. My father feels omnipotent as he places a quarter in the waiter's hand asking for a table. The place is crowded, and here too there is music, this time from a kind of string trio. My father orders with a fine confidence. As their dinner goes on, my father tells of his plans for the future, and my mother shows with expressive face how interested she is, and how impressed. My father becomes exultant, lifted up by the waltz that is being played, and his own future begins to intoxicate him. My father tells my mother that he is going to expand his business, for there is a great deal of money to be made. He wants to settle down. After all, he is twenty-nine. He has lived by himself since his thirteenth year. He is making more and more money, and he is envious of his friends when he visits them in the security of their homes, surrounded, it seems, by the calm domestic pleasures and by delightful children. And then... As the waltz reaches the moment when the dancers all swing madly, then, then with awful daring, then he asks my mother to marry him, although awkwardly enough and puzzled as to how he had arrived at the question, and she, 
to make the whole business worse, begins to cry, and my father looks nervously about, not knowing at all what to do now, and my mother says, "'That's all I wanted from the first moment I saw you,' sobbing. And he finds all of this very difficult, scarcely to his taste, scarcely as he thought it would be on his long walks over Brooklyn Bridge in the reverie of a fine cigar. And it was then, at that point, that I stood up in the theatre and shouted, "'Don't do it! It's not too late to change your minds, both of you. Nothing good will come of it. Only remorse, hatred, scandal, and two children whose characters are monstrous.' The whole audience turned to look at me. Annoyed, the usher came hurrying down the aisle, flashing his searchlight, and the old lady next to me tugged me down into my seat, saying, "'Be quiet. You'll be put out, and you paid thirty-five cents to come in.' And so I shut my eyes, because I could not bear to see what was happening. I sat there quietly. Five. But after a while I began to take brief glimpses, and at length I walked again with thirsty interest, like a child who tries to maintain his sulk when he is offered the bribe of candy. My parents are now having their picture taken in a photographer's booth along the boardwalk. The place is shadowed in the mauve light, which is apparently necessary. The camera is set to the side on its tripod and looks like a Martian man. The photographer is instructing my parents in how to pose. My father has his arm over my mother's shoulder and both of them smile emphatically. The photographer brings my mother's bouquet of flowers to hold in her hand, but she holds it at the wrong angle. And then the photographer covers himself with the black cloth which drapes the camera, and all that one sees of him is one protruding arm and the hand with which he holds tightly to the rubber ball which he squeezes when the picture is taken. But he is not satisfied with their appearance. He feels that somehow there is something wrong in their pose. Again and again he comes out from his hiding place with new directions, each suggestion merely making matters worse. My father is becoming impatient. They try a seated pose. The photographer explains that he has his pride. He wants to make beautiful pictures. He is not merely interested in all of this for the money. My father says, hurry up, will you? We haven't got all night but the photographer only scurries about apologetically, issuing new directions. The photographer charms me, and I approve of him with all my heart, for I know exactly how he feels, and as he criticises each revised pose according to some obscure idea of rightness, I become quite hopeful. But then, my father says angrily, Come on, you've had enough time. We're not going to wait any longer. And the photographer, sighing unhappily, goes back into the black 
covering and holds out his hand, saying, One, two, three, now. And the picture is taken, with my father's smile turned to a grimace and my mother's bright and false. It takes a few minutes for the picture to be developed, and as my parents sit in the curious light, they become depressed. 6. They have passed a fortune teller's booth, and my mother wishes to go in, but my father does not. They begin to argue about it. My mother becomes stubborn, my father once more impatient. What my father would like to do now is walk off and leave my mother there, but he knows that that would never do. My mother refuses to budge. She is near tears, but she feels an uncontrollable desire to hear what the poem reader will say. My father consents angrily, and they both go into the booth, which is, in a way, like the photographer's. Since it is draped in black cloth, and its light is coloured and shadowed, The place is too warm, and my father keeps saying that this is all nonsense, pointing to the crystal ball on the table. The fortune teller, a short, fat woman garbed in robes supposedly exotic, comes into the room and greets them, speaking with an accent. But suddenly my father feels that the whole thing is intolerable. He tugs at my mother's arm, but my mother refuses to budge. And then, in terrible anger, my father lets go of my mother's arm and strides out, leaving my mother stunned. She makes a movement as if to go after him, but the fortune teller holds her and begs her not to do so. And I, in my seat in the darkness, am shocked and horrified. I feel as if I were walking a tightrope one hundred feet over a circus audience and suddenly the rope is showing signs of breaking. And I get up from my seat and begin to shout once more the first words I can think of to communicate my terrible fear. And once more the usher comes hurrying down the aisle, flashing the searchlight. And the old lady pleads with me, and the shocked audience has turned to stare at me, and I keep shouting, What are they doing? Don't they know what they are doing? Why doesn't my mother go after my father and beg him not to be angry? If she does not do that, what will she do? Doesn't my father know what he is doing? But the usher has seized my arm, and is dragging me away. And as he does so, he says, What are you doing? Don't you know you can't do things like this? You can't do whatever you want to do, even if other people aren't about. You will be sorry if you do not do what you should do. You can't carry on like this. It is not right. You will find that out soon enough. Everything you do matters too much. And as he said that, dragging me through the lobby of the theatre, into the cold night, 
I woke up into the bleak winter morning of my twenty-first birthday, the window sill shining with its lip of snow, and the morning already begun.